Money the Educators edition, where we talk about the latest in financial literacy education. I'm Doretta Thompson, Financial Literacy Leader for Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada, where we provide no-cost programs and free online resources that help Canadians own their finances and learn the language of money. You can find our podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, and wherever else you find your podcasts. Please do rate and review us. If you have any questions, you can get in touch with us at financialliteracy at cpacanada.ca. Today I'm speaking with Mac Rogers, Executive Director of ABC Life Literacy Canada. Hi Mac, thanks for dropping by. Hi, thanks for having me. So, tell me a little bit about ABC Life Literacy, which I understand is a, um, it has its roots as a literacy program. Um, and how you transitioned or expanded that to get into financial literacy as well. Absolutely. So um, ABC has been around for over 25 years. Um, we really started as a core literacy. And what I mean by that is focusing on reading and writing and, and numeracy. That was where we're, that's, that's our roots. Um, we've branched out over all sorts of different literacy sectors over the years. So we've had a lot of fun with that. Um, we've done a lot of workplace, a lot of family literacy, um, health literacy. We've even got into some civic literacy pieces. But financial literacy is a really big part of our portfolio and something that um, was identified about 10 years ago. Um, when the financial literacy movement really started kind of kicking up a notch. Um, and, and ABC recognized that a lot of financial literacy training is coming from the lens of financial um, well-being or financial wellness, which is really important and, and an important message. But there was sometimes the literacy piece was missing. So what we really wanted to do was create financial literacy that was for low literacy learners. So very specific to that, that market. So it's a slightly different lens. We're still talking about some of the same topics, but it's how we talk about the topics. It's how we introduce new concepts and ideas. And we really focus on a few kind of core deliverables, which is number one, increasing confidence. As you know, confidence is a huge is issue in, um, with uh, learners trying to change their, their, their life um, choices. But it's also about, you know, just giving them that starting point to go. It's a, they're introductory programs, everything we do is introductory, and it's really about getting people to start the journey for financial wellness. So all your programs are for adult learners, correct? Or yes, yes, that's our focus as adult learners. Some of our programs, specifically around family literacy, um, really do also include kids in the learning because so often we find that kids are a great gateway to adult learners. So if you can get kids excited about learning something or get them to bring something home from school or something home from uh, daycare that gets the parents involved, we can increase not only the literacy level of the kids, but more importantly for us, the literacy level, level of the adults. We find more and more that the, the, the more uh, comfortable parents are with literacy, the more likely they are to pass on those literacy skills to their kids. Interesting. So is that specific to core literacy or does that include your financial literacy programs? It does include our financial literacy program through our HSBC Family Literacy First program, which has, so that's obviously, hence the name, focuses on family literacy, but it does have a numbers and cents component, mm -hmm. which combines family literacy and some financial literacy. Mm -hmm. With our Money Matters program, our flagship financial literacy mm -hmm. program, it also does very much in focus on adults. There are uh, opportunities for people to talk with their families and, and, and um, other people in their community, but the focus really is on that adult learner learning about what are the tools, resources, opportunities they have to, to 
move towards financial wellness. So as you know, the, the point of our podcast here is we're really, we want to share ideas and learnings with other people like us who are developing yeah. and delivering financial literacy programs, financial education leading to financial competency and then to financial well-being. So what I'd, I'd really, with your depth of, of knowledge and experience with adult learning, um, is there sort of specific things you can share with us about, you know, the key things, why, why adult education is different, and some of the yeah. uh, pedagogy around working with adult learners. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think the first thing to understand, which a lot of people don't really recognize, is that literacy is a much bigger problem in Canada than um, is commonly known. So there's a study, um, it's called the it's called the PIAC for short, it's got a long name, it's by the OECD, it's called the Program for the International Assessment of Adult Competencies, if you want to Google it. Um, so it's an OECD international study, Canada participated in it. Um, it's got a lot of really important data on core literacy, so reading and writing, but also numeracy and also how people uh, work in a digital world. And the numbers are a bit shocking. So the way literacy is assessed um, by the OECD is on a five-level scale. And there can be people above and below those five, but those are kind of the five core levels. If you were to equate that to, say, the Ontario uh, education system, level one would be up to grades four or five, three, grades three, four, five. Level two would be up to grades six to eight. And then level three would be what we consider the skills you need to function fully in society, the literacy levels you need. So when you look at that, the two big pieces to really understand is for, um, uh, for core literacy or for, for literacy skills like reading and writing, the bottom two levels, um, so below grade eight, kind of reading level, there's 48% of Canadians fall into that level. So we're talking almost half of Canadians have less than high school literacy. Now these numbers are scary and they're often argued about, which is absolutely fine. It is a big study. I think it was a sample of 25,000 Canadians. Um, there's some oversampling in communities um, that, um, they that different provinces or the federal government identified that they wanted to oversample in. It is the best data we have. Um, but in numeracy, it's actually even worse. We're over 50% of Canadians have below level three literacy levels. So that's pretty terrifying, the numbers. At the lowest level, level one in numeracy, it's 17% of Canadians have like grade, like, you know, elementary school level numeracy skills. So this is where we kind of start from. Now, we could spend, you could do multiple podcasts on the validity of the data and all that sort of thing. I'm not uh, an analyst. I, I, I can't speak to that. But these are the numbers we have. It does rank us from a literacy level in, in 25 OECD countries as number 11, so pretty much right in the middle. So it's not super shocking that our literacy levels are what they are. And what we find is that, um, and I'm sure you find it in your classes too, people with low literacy skills are incredibly brilliant adapters to the world around them, right? Like, and, and so that's, you know, really interesting. And what happened is that when you're talking about pedagogy, it's actually, we go back to um, Malcolm Knowles kind of theories about, and he actually calls it andragogy, which is adult um, education learning theory. And so he goes back and it, it's really about applying those pieces and then sometimes stacking in other learning theories like indigenous learning theory or um, other kind of ESL type learning theories and they're all kind of, there there's some similarities um, but we also try to stack up things where where we see there's a there's combination but really take 
like instead of starting from financial literacy and saying these are the things you need to know, starting with this is how we're going to help you learn them. And, and that's where that, that basic pedagogical framework comes from, where things have to be applicable to that person, they have to be you know, timely, they have to be um, accessible, the language has to be accessible. For years, I, I was the guy standing up at conferences saying, don't forget about literacy. Like, that's really an important part of what we're saying, because that sometimes does get lost. Um, because if you think about financial literacy, so another way to think about it is the federal government has identified nine essential skills. Um, and you can, you can Google them, and I won't remember them all today because I never do, but including in those are literacy, numeracy, working with others, document use, which is how page is laid out, um, digital literacy, continuous learning, and I'm forgetting two, but that's okay. That's how I roll. Um, and what we really want to say is that think about a normal transaction in financial literacy. Right? And what I mean by that, let's, let's say you wanted to get a, a credit card. It doesn't, that activity, that, that need to get a credit card doesn't include just one literacy level, or one essential skill, I should say. It includes multiple combinations of essential skills. So first you have to be able to read the ad that says this credit card is the right credit card for you, or go onto the great FCAC website that helps you choose. You have to be able to navigate that website. So there's digital literacy, and there's also prose literacy, which is the reading part. Then you have to figure out what is an interest rate, what is an, you know, uh, an annual percentage rate, all those types of numeracy pieces. So then you have to have numeracy. Then you might have to sign up online, which again is digital literacy. You might get confused by something, so you might have to talk to someone, so that's working with others. And then there's document use alone. And if you ever, if you don't believe in document use as a literacy, take someone like your child into a place to fill out a document. Like I remember seen a very vivid example of my daughter filling out her first police report for a volunteering or police check for a volunteering thing and watching her just kind of completely blank over looking at this massive page with all these tiny boxes with tiny letters and where you write stuff so all these different pieces connect and confuse and so that's where we say okay let's break it right back down so instead of starting with this is a budget, we start, let's talk about what a budget is. Let's talk about, you know, let's, let's try to frame it in such a way that this is why it's important for your day-to-day -day life. And so it, it's really kind of a different way of thinking about it. And that applies not only to our workbooks, but also to how we train the facilitators. So it's the, the teachers, the volunteers, the people who deliver our programs. We take that same, you know, uh, pedagogical look at how we deliver that information. And, and it, so it, it kind of intertwines all these different pieces. But the mm -hmm. core of it is we really try you know, to stick to our knitting and focus on literacy as the tool that gets people these other life capacities they need. So that's fascinating. I mean, both the data and, and what you do about that. It's, it's really kind of shocking, isn't it? It, it is. Especially since, you know, if you were to look up Wikipedia or something like that, you would say, I believe the last time I looked at it, Canada has a 99% literacy rate. Yeah, well, that's... But they're measuring something different. Well, and, and yeah, because, you know, in the olden times, um, people used to think of literacy as a binary, right? You have it or you don't. So right. you'd be sitting there going... This person, and so in the literacy field, you will never hear anyone say the term illiterate right. because it doesn't, no one, or like 
Wikipedia says, almost no one is quote-unquote illiterate, right? It, or illiterate. Um, it's always on a spectrum, mm -hmm. right? It's like anything we have, all of our skills, all of our, our abilities, they're always on a spectrum. There's always going to be someone better than you. You're always going to be better than someone else. And so when you focus on literacy as, as an asset-based piece, so if they have level one literacy, then it would be ideal to bring them the information they need to, to learn to live a fully engaged life at level one. Now, we do everything at level two because um, that catches a, a big group of people that are left behind. So level two is like, so everything, all of our materials are at a grade six to eight reading level, but you end up with this really kind of um, interesting dynamic where educators who work with people at level one essentially adapt on the fly to bring it to a level one. They slow down the pace, they change some of the language, and they can kind of modify it and tweak it to fit their community. Um, and it can also be used by people who are closer to level three or even in, uh, above level three. We've used it in, in college upgrading programs where the literacy level is much higher, and they simply move through the material faster, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's, so it's, we try to capture as many uh, as much information for as many people as possible is really how we think about it. Interesting. So you have, I think, three core programs, an adult program, a newcomer program, and an indigenous program? Yeah, and yeah, we have the three, and then we also have, um, we have done some other kind of, like we were just launching people uh, with diverse abilities program, mm -hmm. uh, so we launched that in November as a, as a pilot. That went really well. Um, with our sponsor, TD Bank has been an amazing supporter of, of this program for uh, going on nine years now, so it's been fantastic. But So we're always trying new things. So we started with the core and then we built with um, particularly with the influx of Syrian refugees so our newcomers was was not only for English uh, delivered in English and French but it's also translated into Arabic um, we also translated into simplified Chinese so there's so for newcomers there's that, that option and then indigenous people it was identified um, as you know, we said um, that Indigenous people need some more resources as well, Indigenous Canadians, both rural and urban. So that was the, we had worked with a group out of Ottawa called Wabano to modify our program um, to be more reflective of the Indigenous lived experience. So so what differences do you see between those groups and, and how would you use that to advise people who are trying to have, have those core audiences as part of their key stakeholder groups? Yeah, I mean, I think that, and to kind of do it in reverse order, the biggest piece with, with the Indigenous is actually very similar to the core program, which mm -hmm. is, um, but it's, it's really, we try to make sure that it reflects the lived experience. Um, so the vignettes or the storylines are more about what it's like, the, the lived experience of an Indigenous Canadian. Um, so that's really, it's, it's more of a lens that we've changed. We are currently uh, re revising it again, which will be coming out probably... Um, late fall um, with another kind of audit of the program to make sure we're following all the, all the indigenous learning theories. So that one, it, it's really goes back to the, the credo of, you know, nothing for us without us. So we would like to really engage the indigenous community in, in what we're doing and, and try to adapt it that way. Core literacy was built based on uh, a st steering committees and professionals that focus on low literacy Canadians. So, so this is a big group in that a low literacy Canadian can be a newcomer, they can be someone who English is a second language, they can be someone who became disengaged with learning for whatever reasons and wherever they're, they're from, Canada or otherwise, and have decided to kind of join 
uh, a class or a group to learn about something. So that is very much built with literacy practici practitioners. The newcomer model is slightly different in that it is a, it is a bit more. It's still workbook based. They're all sorry. I should clarify all the pro programs are workshop workbook based. However, because of the size of a lot of newcomer classes, small group wasn't really the best fit, which is what the other programs are designed for. So it includes a seminar style aspect. So it does have the take home workbook that people can really kind of sink their teeth into, but it's also delivered by our volunteers from TD and, 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 our, and the, and the uh, educators in a more um, kind of front of the room type methodology, whereas our core programming and our indigenous is delivered more in small groups. So it might be a room with 20 learners, but there'll be five volunteers sitting around working with two or three learners each. Mm -hmm. okay. So what would your advice be to um, people developing programs like ours in terms of uh, how to go about understanding the people they're developing the programs for and how to adapt that? So the first thing to understand is to understand the learner themselves. And there's, and you can, you know, you can, I, I'm always a bit hesitant to say this is what a learner is, right? Because they all have such different lived experiences. But some of the things that you should really think about is um, how, how you deliver the, the messages, how you deliver the, the teachings. And what I mean by that is if you look at our training for facilitators and volunteers, it actually doesn't, there's very little about the content of the, um, uh, of the workbooks in the training, like maybe 15% of the, the, the training for, for practitioners is, or sorry, for volunteers is on the actual workbook. It really focuses on adult learning theory and how to navigate through a classroom. So some of the tips are simple and would be, you know, second nature to anyone who spent a lot of time in a classroom, our, our teachers, our practitioners, experienced volunteers. But for someone who's new, and it's always good to remind people, but for someone who's new, it may be eye-opening, right? So things that we do in our day-to-day -day lives that we forget about, so and, and we're super guilty of it in the uh, financial literacy world, which is things like acronyms are a horrible idea, right, um, for, for learners. If you want to talk about RESPs, you say Registered Education Savings Plan, but you don't just say that, you then explain it, right? This is a savings plan to help you save for your kids at post-secondary or university education. And you say that until you get to the point where you think they, your learners know, and then you can say, on RESP, does anyone know what that is? And then wait for them to let you know. And then that kind of is a, like a teach-back moment where you can really connect with them and make sure that they're, they're following along. So it can be simple as that. It can be different um, cultures and communities have different ways of communicating, you know, like, like how you're sitting, how you're standing, being too close, being too far, like those kind of physical pieces. It can also be about really, like I said at the, be at the beginning, the adaptive nature of a learner who is, you know, struggling with the language is so incredible. I mean, I've learned so much more from learners than I've learned from every, any professor. Something as simple as a learner, a low literacy learner can knows, can read body language better than someone who has high literacy skills because that becomes, you know, a tool to avoid, uh, for lack of a better term, admitting that they have an issue. So um, I remember one of my, when I, I got into adult literacy as a volunteer, you know, 20 years ago with West Neighborhood House, they trained me as a volunteer. And, and one of the instructors was teaching me that, you know, the way a teacher shifts their, their, his or her hips, that they're going to turn to look at the class, that's the cue that 
low literacy learners can see and they will look down because they don't want to make eye contact and encourage any sort of dialogue or anything like that because they haven't done the reading or they haven't they're not able to so it's things as simple as that that you really need to be aware of so it's it's breaking it down to the simplest and most effective way i mean one of the things we talk about time and time again is bring your humor bring your humanity and just enjoy yourself like don't come in in a suit and you know you know, yes, you are the subject matter expert, but the moment you walk into a classroom, you cease being an advocate for yourself or your organization or your bank, and you become an advocate for that learner. So you're their champion. You're their, you're their go-to person. And, and it's been a remarkable journey to see, you know, over a thousand TD volunteers running through our, our programs and just the relationships and the power that this program builds. We have data that shows that a program is more effective when delivered by volunteers than it is delivered by their own teachers who they have relationships with and, and it, just because it's a, something new and exciting. So it's a lot of those pieces are really, really important. And you have to just be so respectful of the choices they make. And you can use those as teaching moments. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I remember watching a vol TD volunteer um, and it was her, one of her learners was, uh, he liked to party. He liked to go, he liked to spend time at the bars. And so she actually worked with him to figure out a budget on how much he spent at the bar over a week or a month, I can't remember exactly. And then showed him how if he actually didn't go these two days, he could have a party with all his friends this day. And, you know, like, so things like that, like showing them if you, if you cut back on smoking by one pack a day, that means at the end of the month, you actually have enough for a train ticket to go see your sister in Montreal, right? So you're not judging anybody's life choices. You're using the life choices as teachable moments in a very positive and, and hopefully entertaining way. And I think you have a, a downloadable resource on this that, that organizations can access? Yeah, they can actually, all of our stuff is available online. Um, you do have to sign up, just give us your email, and that allows you to go in and take a look at it, see if it's right for you, fit for you, because there are so many amazing programs out there in financial literacy. I mean, CPA Canada obviously has some remarkable resources, but we also have Junior Achievement, if you're looking more for kids, has some great stuff. Um, you've got Prosper Canada, has some, some amazing training that everyone should, should uh, take in. So really, you have to think about what works for you. What are your learners, you know, really used to, right? If your learners are people who are used to, you know, a specific kind of small group workbook style, Money Matters may be the right tool for you. If they're used to a different kind of delivery or if you're looking to actually go more in depth and really take it and, and dig into each of these very important topics a bit more, because we are introductory, mm -hmm. then CPA Canada or Prosper or, you know, JA may be the right fit for you. So it's really about finding the tools that, your that resonate with your class and ABC is just one of many great ones. And I think that that is such an important thing to get people to understand is that if you want to uh, develop, provide access to financial education, you are not starting in a vacuum. You do not have to start from scratch. Right. There are just a lot of resources out there. And of course, um, the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada, FCAC, which is the federal government department responsible for financial literacy, um, offers a lot of, uh, of resources online. Um, you and I have been, both been very involved yeah. in, the, in, in helping to shape the, those, those offerings. So lots of stuff available um, that, that people can start with. You don't have to start from scratch. And, and all of us are very, very, very open to sharing what we know and what we've learned. Yeah, I mean, um, and, you're, and I, we can't stress that enough, is that 
this community is a friendly, you know, and it's a, it's a lovely community to be part of, and I'm very proud to be part of it, and, and, and like you, very proud to be someone who's pushing forward that, that community of, of support. And the thing is, is that, you know, if you're nervous about teaching financial literacy, which you may recognize is an extremely important thing, you can leverage resources that not only are beautiful and well-built, but also have the subject matter experts come in. And that's when you get CPA Canada's, you know, get the CPA coming and delivering programs. Money Matters, you get the TD Bank volunteer um, volunteers coming in delivering program. You don't have to be the expert. You can find people who are the expert. Now, if you want to be the expert, that's when you go play with Prosper Canada, and they will teach you how to be an expert. Yeah. And that's that's a really interesting point that I'd like to to explore a little bit more. I'm really interested both in the the because I was going to going to ask you about how it is you you uh, support and provide training to staff of frontline organizations so they can deliver financial literacy. But I know one of the learnings that we've seen repeatedly is that that may not be your best, your best route to go. Um, yeah. And there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, sometimes the frontline staff is not, they're not comfortable, no matter how much support you give them, they're not comfortable doing this kind of education. But I'm really interested in your observation and your learnings that, in fact, the very fact that it's a different person actually makes a difference in the yeah. learning experience. So how does that work? Yeah, so really what we think we find is that it adds validity to the, the content and it adds power to the conversation. It also, as you know, every teacher is overwhelmed. It doesn't matter if you're teaching kindergarten or if you're a, a professor. It's, um, you're, they're all overwhelmed. Adult learning instructors are no different. The practitioners are just overwhelmed. So bringing in volunteers that can help break up the group into smaller groups, you can have those personal in-depth conversations. You can dig in, you can actually take someone's cell phone bill <coughs> and look at them and explain, here are some different options, here are mm -hmm. some different things. You can really dig in into these smaller conversations in a safe and secure environment for the, for the learner. Now, we actually train our practitioners, the teachers, because they're already experts in their field. So us teaching an expert is kind of pointless. So we're really teaching them how we recommend delivering our program, which is exactly the same training that we give to our volunteers. And again, it's focusing primarily on adult learning theory and, and classroom tips and tricks and those kinds of core pieces of navigating the classroom of adults. And then to a lesser extent saying, here are some tips and tricks for the actual workbook. And, and this, a lot of this came from the feedback we got from practitioners and volunteers over the last eight years of running the program is many or many um, facilitators said, you know, we get the material. Like, mm -hmm. we understand what a budget is. We understand what an RESP is. I mean, thank you for helping to explain it, but it, we do understand it. It's really about how do we impress upon our learners that this is important and it's doable and it's not that scary. And when, you know, because the biggest difference between someone who's a low literacy learner and someone who's got higher literacy when it comes to financial literacy is really confidence. So if you or I see something on a cell phone bill or on our visa that doesn't make sense, the first thing we're going to do is pick up the phone and call and try to make sense of it. And we're going to have arguments with our suppliers and we're going we're gonna to advocate for ourselves because we have the confidence to do so. If you ask a lot of low literacy learners who tend to go through cell phone plans very swiftly, what happens when you lose a cell phone plan? They don't recognize that that affects their credit rating. They just realize that they lose that number. So it's a different, 
an understanding of the banking system becomes important. So it's actually really important for our learners to learn that you, you should push back. If there's a weird charge on your cell phone, you should say no. You shouldn't just stop paying it and then get another cell phone. I mean, that, that really does seem like the easiest way to navigate um, when you're in the moment, but in reality, we all know that that's going to affect us long term. So we don't spend a lot of time teaching people about finances because we're a financial literacy with the emphasis on literacy. Mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting. We, you know, we have the same issues with our program that, that, you know, with our thousands of volunteers across the country, and they are subject matter experts. I mean, they are professional, you know, sort of yeah. uh, chartered professional accountants. They're experts in the field. It's the teaching moments. It is the um, telling stories. It's encouraging people to open up and be themselves and make those personal connections. Yeah. Um, you know, don't be afraid to talk about your own mistakes in this area. Don't be, you know, put your, put your, um, be open, feel your feelings, share your feelings, yeah. and be open to receive them from other people. Yeah, and those, those anecdotes that we all have oh. from mistakes we made, you know, like, I, I don't know anyone who hasn't accidentally signed up for a Visa card at a, you know, somehow, or, you know, you're just like, I did what? And it's like... The gym memberships. The gym memberships, exactly. <laughs> like, it's, that those stories and that humor and that, that caring are so important, yeah. because that's, like, I remember going back, this is going back a number of years, so when I first went after the pilot, and for after year one, I went um, to the, the client and to TD Bank, and, you know, and as I was talking about observing the pilot, because as, you know, as, as the developer, I'm in the room for when we first test it, one of the things I wanted to, I wanted to share was like, we need a new metric. And that is that, yes, we measured, you know, the, the learner's experience and the volunteer's experience and the pra practitioner's feedback and all this sort of thing. But we didn't have a metric for how many hugs we saw between volunteers and learners because it was, it was remarkable how many times I saw that. Like people would get up after the, you know, it's, it's four workbooks, it's eight hours of, of training, it's not a long intervention. And they would get up and they'd be hugging their volunteers saying, thank you so much. You know, this is really interesting. Um, we were lucky enough in our second or third year to do a social return on investment. We saw some really, really powerful over three to one ratio from, from in, in our investment, which was amazing. Um, but it's like those, that social return on investment comes from the confidence that our teachers, be it the practitioner, the, C, the CPA or the TD Bank volunteer or anyone who's delivering the programming, it's their commitment to, to bring the best out of their learners and, and that's really what works the best. Yeah, that's great. And one thing I'm interested in, and this I think coming from you, is a lot of us are working exclusively in the area of financial education, mm -hmm. you know, on that, that continuum that we're all trying to work for and the idea that you move from education to competency to wellness, yeah. hopefully. Um, and, and, uh, but what, what I'm really interested in as well is how you see that financial literacy as part of the big, or the financial wellness, as part of the bigger wellness picture. And you referred to that a little bit at the beginning of our chat. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, we've all seen the studies, a lot of us have seen the studies that show uh, mental wellness, mental health is directly related to financial literacy, financial well-being, um, depending on the terminology you want to use. And basically, the, in a nutshell, is we all, we're all stressed by money. It doesn't matter if you're a CEO or if, if, if you're, you're just starting your career path. Everyone has stresses with money. And the thing is, is that what we find is that if you look at any of these life capacities, health literacy, financial literacy, they all need a place to start. 
And that's where Money Matters and ABC comes in, is we're that starting point, right? We are not financial advisors. We are not, you know, exactly. we're not teaching people how to, like, if you ask me if I actually, one of the, like, we don't measure if someone can calculate interest on a loan coming out of a class. That's not something that we're interested in. We want to know if they have the confidence to ask someone else how to calculate interest on a loan. That is the key deliverable that our program offers. And I think that that confidence then leads to wellness. So absolutely, financial coaching, you know, uh, more in-depth seminars on specific products or activities, those are all really important. And But they continue on from where you have to have someone in the room that has the confidence to ask the question before they'll, they'll, they'll move forward. If you think about it, a lot of us are looking at trying to affect behavioral change. We're trying to get people to start a savings account or we're trying to get people to pay off the high interest rate debts first or whatever the teaching of that day is. And if you look at behavioral change theory, and you can pick, there's all sorts of them, as you know, you can pick lots of them. Really focus, what ABC focuses on, on those first two pieces, which is, First, awareness, mm -hmm. so making sure people are aware that financial literacy or financial wellness is important, and, and you, and then, but more importantly, the second stage of that process of behavioral change is attitudinal change, and that's where comp increasing confidence, reducing anxiety really comes in. Once you get into that, you know, level three, four, where you're starting to talk about skill development, yes, we have some of that built into the programs because that's how we affect attitudinal changes by giving them the confidence to say, this is what a spending plan is, but really those kind of in-depth skills, people can rely on other um, support to do that. They can take other courses, they can talk to professionals, but if they're communicating about it within their family, within their community, and within their financial uh, supporters, they can really start make, moving the needle on their own financial mm -hmm. wellness. Mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting, I mean, from, from when you talk about it from the perspective of low literacy Canadians, for whatever reason, that, yeah. that, that they're at, at the lower end of the, of, of the scale, um, but, but it actually works exactly the same way as you go up the scale. Yeah. Confidence remains this huge, huge issue. It's like money's become the last taboo. Yeah. It, and it's symbolic of so many things. Yeah. Money is not just money, no. right? Money is a door opener. Money is a status symbol. Money represents power. Money represents a gazillion different things. Yeah. And so that whole confidence, um, we see it at every level. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's uh, I've read that, that in, for example, even in investment banks, et cetera, yeah. some of their highest performers are in the worst personal financial yeah. situation. You know, yeah. it, it's just, so this idea of, of, of building confidence and financial and linking that to empowerment and financial responsibility. I mean, you have to be, not just confident enough to, yes, you have to start, you have to be confident to know what questions to ask and to be confident in your right to ask those questions. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Like that is huge. You yeah. have the right to ask that question. Yeah. You know, if you're working within it, and this would be probably with a different group than yours, so not necessarily, but if you're working, say, with an investment advisor, yeah. you have a right to ask them, how do you get paid? Yeah. Like, how do you get paid? Who's your responsibility to? Is yeah. it to me or is yeah. it to With your, your institution? Ethics, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, and, but people don't even, it, people are often, they don't feel they have the right to ask those questions no. or they're afraid to ask a stupid question. Well, and they're afraid to expose themselves. Yeah. And that's the beauty of, of, to be honest, both of our programs is that 
our instructors, our facilitators, our volunteers, if they set an environment of safe and secure in the classroom, people will talk about, as you say, the biggest taboo. And it's not just in, in financial literacy. We saw the same when we launched the health literacy program. We were very nervous that no one's going to share, right? We had the ex exact opposite problem, people, complete oversharing in a <laughs> safe and secure place. And we had pharmacists... Uh, volunteer pharmacists delivering this training, and it's the same thing we see with volunteer with with our volunteer bankers uh, from TD. Is that you're sitting there and you're watching these conversations, and people are pulling out, you know, these pink letters from Hydro or from whatever, and saying, "What do I do about this?" And the the amazing thing is, is that the without any judgment, without any reservations, without any the our bankers dig in, they try to help, same thing I'm sure you see, it's, it's time and time again, and it creates that environment where then they're realizing this is a person, a subject matter expert who knows financial literacy, who knows financial, uh, the financial structures of our country, and they're telling me, <clears throat> pardon me, it's okay to go in and ask questions, it's okay to push back, and, and it all comes back to that, and it doesn't, even where there's a, just a, a volunteer practitioner, it comes back to them, how do they empower their learners to go out and be successful in a very complicated and overwhelming world of finance. Yeah. So you, you alluded to it a little bit earlier, but let's get specific here. Tell me about one of your financial mistakes. Sure. Uh, it wasn't even that long ago. It was about, <laughs> I'd already been teaching financial literacy for two years, and I was in um, a, a large grocery chain I will not name, and I was you know, pushing the grocery cart around, shopping, and uh, a, a lady came up and she said, oh, you want some free cookies, I think it was. And I was like, oh, my daughter might like those cookies. Um, so I started, get, she's asking me for, like, it's like a survey, she's asking for a name, and then like halfway through, it dawned on me that I'm essentially signing up for a blank um, credit card. And I'm like, am <laughs> I signing up for a credit card? And she's like, well, you actually signed up for a credit card by that point. Like, it happens that fast. So, sure enough, a week later in the mail comes a credit card from this, um, this and, you know, I, because I, I, it was just one of those days where I was foggy. Norm normally, you're, you're quick enough to realize someone's trying to sell you something or, like, there's no free cookies, right? So, um, and, uh, and, you know, I immediately opened the envelope, picked up the phone, called them, and was, like, really sorry. I, I just, I don't want this. I don't need this. But it's, and the funny thing is, is, so when I tried to apply for a business loan 20 years ago, when I was starting a business, I went in and I was trying to get uh, a business, like the business loan. And on my credit card, I had three credit cards that were never used that were signed up for two years before I was born. And yeah, and they were on my credit history. And so eventually I go into the bank and I'm fighting with them. And the guy leaves the room for a moment, and I took a look at it, and I can actually see the name that it's under, and it's actually, and I realize it's my father's name. So my father and I have the same first name. But, like I said, this is two years before I was born. And my father, when he moved to Toronto, um, you know, he was trying to get set up, and he ended up picking up a few of these credit cards. Brilliant guy, Stanford, MBA, you know. And, he, and then he quickly realized, I don't need these credit cards, so he never used them. But for, at this point, for 25 years, these credit cards have been sitting empty against my SIN number. And, and you know, at the end, I was basically threatening them, saying, like, if you don't get these off, then I'm going to sue you for giving an underage person a credit card, right? Like, because I was born yet. But, like, so it happens to everybody. I mean, you should never feel silly when you get burned, 
you know, you will feel silly, but you should never beat yourself up over it. As long as you have the confidence and the skills to make the choice, to, to try to fight back and try to make the right choice next time, you're going to be fine. It's that, you know, like, like, I mean, I'm sure you've done it and as well. And it's like, and we teach this stuff and we're like, wait, I did what? You know, it's that moment where you have to really pause. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had one, again, not that long ago that, um, we were renovating a condo, and we uh, uh, took out. So, and we because of, we were moving properties and stuff, we and that we needed a um, we took out a home equity line of credit right. for that for like literally two months to get the the renos done before the other house closed, and we were given a home equity line of credit that was double what we asked for. Yeah. And it was like, as if that had done us a great favor. Yeah. Like, no. Yeah, no, no I'm good, really. I'm... This is what I need. Well, it's like, I remember when we, my wife and I bought our house uh, five years ago when we asked, we went in for a mortgage, and they're like, well, you can get, and we're like, no, we don't want that much. We want the small amount. We'll pay cash for the balance. Yeah. Like, it's, it's risky, right? And, it, and it's sometimes you have to make that hard choice. Yeah. And say no. And I, I do, I don't know how you feel about this, but I, I look at the work that, um, you know, I think that the work that the behavioral econ economists are doing right now is yeah. really interesting and really important. And it's important to be looking at the kinds of choice architecture and nudges that you can do to help people make yeah. um, better financial decisions, et cetera. But there's also a part of me, because I, I, you may not know this, but my background is marketing. Yeah. And it's like, this is not new. No. <laughs> um, marketers have known those kinds of nudge theories for many, many, many years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the old, like, even things like direct mail and, and magazine subscriptions. Yeah. How many magazine subscriptions does one have of magazines one didn't read anymore simply because you couldn't be bothered canceling it? Yeah. You know, it's. Uh, exactly. So, and we're all, we all fall into those things, right? But yeah. you're right. We, we just need to own them and make better decisions next time. Yeah. And nudge theory and nudge behavioral economics is definitely one of the tools in our toolbox mm -hmm. to help people out. And we see it, you know, we've seen it with SmartSaver making some really uh, keen advancements using similar types of things mm -hmm. where people are opting in or, you know, um, or having, they have to opt out, I guess is what I should say, about choices that are strong for them. And, and I would love to see that more at the government level for financial choices. Like if your kid's eligible, eligible for Canada Learning Bond, you shouldn't have to apply. It should be part of your tax you know, process. It should just be, bing, here you go, this is in your account. If you don't use it, we take it back. I, why isn't that? And that's technically nudge, right? Like, it, you're, you're pushing people, Good they point. would have to opt out. That would be a really nice thing for us. And we can see that time and time again, right? Like, and, and so I think there are people that worry about nudge theory and, and how it can you know, kind of change the locus of control on decision making, but sometimes that's good. I need help making decision on things, so you know, I uh, I could use a little nudging here and there. <laughs> the thing is, is that there is no absence of nudging when you think about it. Choice, you have there is a choice architecture, whether you want it or not. Yeah. There is the architecture is there. Yep. So if you're making people opt in rather than opt out. You're shaping their decisions. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. let's be intelligent about it. Yeah. Let's exactly. be helpful about it. Yeah. And and that's part of the classroom, right? That's part of the practitioner volunteer mm -hmm. thing is you're trying to influence decisions without usually being a financial advisor, but you're trying to suggest, you know, maybe you should be speaking to a financial advisor. You know, you have enough that you're 
enough things going on in your financial world that this is somewhere you could actually get some help. And that alone is a nudge towards that. You know, when you're talking about um, trying to encourage people, we're doing it. We're just doing it through education versus through, you know, automation, which Mm -hmm. is a slightly different way of thinking about it. But why not, you know, have our educators become our, you know, automators and then things get better that way. There we go. Listen, this has been a great discussion. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. This has been another episode of Mastering Money, the Educator's Edition, brought to you by Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is financialliteracy at cpacanada.ca, and you can rate and review us on iTunes.